Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Agape Match. Agape Match is a boutique matchmaking service that caters to exceptional singles. To learn more about how I can help you, go to agapematch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week, I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. I record these episodes on Zoom, and you can join us on our next recording. Go to askamatchmaker.com to register. You can also ask a question in real time during a recording or send a pre-recorded audio question to askamatchmakerpodcast at gmail.com. In this week's episode, I'm speaking to relationship columnist Jasmine Loeb, and she'll be joining us as I answer your dating and relationship questions. Writer and actress Jasmine Loeb pens the relationship column, The J-Spot, for The Observer. She has also written for Cosmopolitan, The New York Post, Thought Catalog, The OkCupid Blog, New York Natives, and The No Cultural Almanac. She co-starred on Law & Order, Dirt Kane, Retired at 35, The Human Giant, Hope and Faith, and acted in multiple web series and independent films. She is a silence breaker in the Me Too movement and is currently writing a memoir. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. What an intro. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a tongue twister. (laughs) It is a tongue twister. It comes off as like, okay, relationship columnist at The Observer, which I have a, a lot of questions about that. But then it's like, oh, wait, Me Too movement, you know, that I feel like you have like a whole range of emotions while- Right. And then there's Hollywood- (laughs) <laughs> and there's Hollywood. I mean, yeah, it's all connected. I mean, it's all, I guess, in all interconnected. Let's start from the beginning then for a second. So how did you become a relationship columnist for The Observer? It kind of happened very like naturally in the sense that I was an actress in Hollywood and I had a lot of very intense experiences there. It was, it's, you know, a very misogynistic culture and a lot of sexism And I started writing about it. And I first started writing about it for New York natives. And I was very scared to write about these truths because, I don't know, I guess I always wanted to be a really likable, pleasing person. I think women kind of go through that. You know, they're told they're supposed to be pretty, pleasing, perfect. And what I was writing about was very raw. And it wasn't, I don't know, it just felt dangerous. But I started publishing and a family friend who went to Vassar, I also went to Vassar, he read it and really loved it. And he then sent it to the editor-in-chief. I had an interview and I got the column. How long have you been writing for The Observer? I've now been writing for The Observer for six years. And now it's changed. Now it's more about feminism, I call them. It's sort of changed from sort of a regular sex column, relationship column to more 
political. I'm not writing about my personal dating sex life anymore. Um, well, you've evolved as a writer, one would hope, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, that was a really big part of my journey for a while is writing about that. And, right. um, you know, all of these subjects that I thought were taboo and it was very freeing. It was very liberating. So where are um, you originally from? Like, where were you raised? <laughs> In this room. Where is this room located? <laughs> on the moon. No, um, this room is in Soho and, uh, Oh wow. You're like a original Manhattanite. Yes. I'm an original Manhattanite and I lived in California for six years. And then I lived on the upper West side for a little bit. And now I am back in Soho and I've spent the quarantine with my parents, which actually has been really amazing because it's just, when do you get to spend so much time with your parents? Right. And last week's guest also um, lives with her, you know, she has moved in with her parents uh, in quarantine and we talked about that and it's exactly, it's what you just um, touched on. It's when do you get a chance to, you know, on the other side, spend this much time and oh, and my father's like a really great chef. So oh, that works. Like, That's perfect. I mean, it's you know every night there are just amazing meals, and you know I, I've gotten really spoiled in that sense. I'm like, what am I gonna do for food if I ever leave here? I'll tell you from the opposite perspective as a parent. One of the silver linings in all this is getting to know our son. I mean, I, I know that sounds really weird, but you know he's mm. two and a half years old. My husband and I we both work and. Getting to know him on a full-time basis and just watching him grow since March has been such a blessing. And the day that my daughter was born in May, I wrote a letter to him before we headed over to the hospital just to say, you know, like what an amazing last two months it's been. I cannot wait to see you become a big brother, but it was just so, you know, I just felt you're always close with your kids and, but it's just different. It's different seeing, yeah. you know, experiencing your children as a parent. Oh my God. I, I in this imagine, way, I you can know, I imagine, I mean, yeah. it, it's really incredible. I mean, I'm sure also at times I know probably a lot of parents are, it's very hard to be around your child 24 seven, especially. Oh if you're not, yeah. You know, <laughs> it so is, it's like, it, it creates challenges, but I think that overall it's really priceless. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not all rose color. It's just not, it's just, I, maybe it's because my son's a toddler, so there's a lot of growth spurts in the last couple of months, and you get to see this. But you also, I happen to have a child, another child, in this while this was happening, and also watching him transition from two year old, two and a half year old to big brother has been just incredible. Anyway, I, can, back to I, you. I have, I have <laughs> actually a niece who is seven months old now, or almost eight months, and just watching her like over Zoom. I mean, we recently mm-hmm. visited them, but it's incredible to see how, I mean, I've never been a parent before and I hope do one day I get, do you want to be a parent? I do. I do. Okay. And I hope one day I get to be, but you know, to see how a baby transforms in just short months is incredible. Yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. they've never really thought about it before. You we, just we, know, we, oh, we've always been so up. distracted. We've always been yeah. so distracted. It, you know, it's been interesting. You know, you mentioned that you, um, your column has transitioned And I think about how as a country we've transitioned, I feel like certain things that are happening right now, maybe they would not have happened if we had all the distractions of day-to-day life. Like I'm in awe of the BLM movement and watching it really accelerate the last two months 
has been so interesting because I think to myself, well, yeah, there's no distractions. There's no sports happening. There's no school shootings. There's nothing else taking, you know, there is a pandemic. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, and there's a mismanagement of that global pandemic in this country. But well, this global pandemic is also disproportionately hurting the black community and just watching it unfold every day, you know, supporting my friends um, who are protesting. I don't know if it would have been this big if we were distracted in our day-to-day lives. I agree. And in Soho, the stores, now they're opening up again, but were boarded up. And then there's beautiful art, you know, Black Lives Matter movement art all over, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was really, it felt like a real celebration. And that's, that's been very exciting too, because here are these sort of like stores like Chanel and, and Dior and, and then you have like this beautiful mural of, you know, Black Lives Matter. And then you have some things too, like eat the rich and, you know, everyone is, but it's fascinating because it's very clear that we are not in an equal society and the rich have just gotten richer. And um, it's just very, I feel like there's a purge happening right now and we're really seeing, you know, the inequalities. And I really hope that even though this has been a very- Well, not not even just the inequalities, but like the social injustices. I mean, this is something I I want to touch on, but literally two days before lockdown- Harvey Weinstein was found guilty on March 11th. In yes. fact, that night is when President Trump went on TV and said, we're shutting down uh, the country in two days. So that more, that's, that's a crazy 24 hours. It has been a whirlwind. It is like, it is one, it's like, boom, boom. I feel like time is just like moving and all of these events are happening so quickly and so much change is happening so quickly. But I also think that these were under the surface for a long time. Yeah. Kind of were like a dam and then they exploded. And so that's, it feels like we're all like, it's like whiplash, but it's like, boom, boom, boom. These things were building. And I really think it was, it was time. So in January, you wrote an article in Cosmopolitan titled, as a survivor of Harvey Weinstein, here's the justice I want from his trial. I want to read an excerpt from this. I was 24 and I met him for work lunch in Soho. He brought his assistant and a casting director. He asked the director to keep me in mind for upcoming roles. I thought I won the lottery. Instead, it was a ticket to hell. What ensued was a three-month platonic friendship, or rather a grooming period. I believed he thought I was talented and considered him a mentor. He was big and intimidating, but he was powerful and made me feel important. He dangled hope. When he didn't get what he wanted, he abruptly ended our friendship and told me to never contact him again unless I wanted something more. I plummeted into a depression. I felt disoriented. We were now on bad terms and I was afraid he'd ruin my career. I wanted to get my power back. Like a moth to a flame, I called him for lunch a month later. I met him in his hotel suite where he conducted his business meetings. That's where the assault happened. I said no. I disassociated. It was not consensual. I was terrified and he knew it. He knew what he was doing was wrong. I managed to escape into the hallway and once in the safety of a crowded elevator, he said, I'm proud of myself for behaving. I understood that meant I was lucky I didn't get raped. When you hear me read this, like what goes through your mind? I think I go in and out of 
being there and at the same time, like listening to the story. I'm hearing it as a writer, so I'm still disassociating in a way. But one of the very interesting things is Louise Godbold, who's also another survivor and who I had the honor of meeting during this time. And this one of what happened during the trial is, is I met a, all these other survivors. How many were there? Oh, I mean, there are a hundred plus survivors, but oh I would say probably 20, 25 of us put our names on all of the you know documents that we put out mm-hmm. in the press. And yeah, but one of the things that I thought was interesting is Louise is a trauma expert. And she said that, you know, a lot of times survivors get re-traumatized in the press because they are forced to, it's because of sensationalism and also they're forced to sort of recount what happened. And that's what happened the first time when I came out in the press in 2017. They wanted to know details. They wanted to know exactly what happened in the assault. And I said that, and I didn't know at the time that that was re-traumatizing. In some ways, as I'm listening to you read that, I think it's a healthy response that I'm not there, that mm-hmm. I'm seeing it now more as a story that I've written because I don't, you know, I, I don't want to go into that room. Like I see it from above. And I think that's one of the interesting things about writing is it is almost like an exorcism. It's almost like once it's on the page, yes, of course there's still trauma in your body and you work on that and you, it's, you know, I think it's always, you know, a never ending process of loving yourself, forgiving yourself, forgiving others. But writing is very cathartic and it's almost like you see it outside of yourself. So I think that that's what I was going, wavering back and forth between being there and listening and remembering. Mm -hmm. So when this happened to you, it did impact you in dating and relationships. Yeah. I mean, I think that anytime, and here's the other thing, and I wrote this I wrote multiple pieces, but one thing that I wrote for The Observer is that it wasn't just Harvey Weinstein, that it's been many men who have been inappropriate, who have been entitled, who have made me feel uncomfortable sexually or, you know, um, and there are many good men too. There are many. So I want to make that clear because, you know, it's very important that- Yeah, we're not painting all men like this. Right. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, like, you know, there are- let me ask you a question. I like to ask this sometimes to women. When do you think the first time you felt uncomfortable sexually? Like, were you were I aware? The first time I felt uncomfortably, uncomfortable sexually was um, I was 12. My father was going into a health food store and I waited outside with mm-hmm. my dog. I hadn't even gotten my period. I was prepubescent. And a guy came up to me that was an adult, like in his forties, I don't know, I was 12, like, and he started hitting on me and he started telling me that, asking me what I was doing and said that, you know, I was beautiful and stuff like that. And I just remember feeling so much shame and wanting him to go away, go away. And I kept saying my father's in there, my father's coming out and, and he finally walked away, but I remember starting to feel very afraid that my sexuality became dangerous. Right. And um, it wasn't, you know, like, I, I love that book. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And there's oh, a line like, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. Well, mm-hmm. I was the opposite. I was a figure skater, which is the sort of prepubescent body is idolized. 
I was a model. The heroine chic look was idolized. So I was always feeling pressure to be emaciated. And then having any curves felt like it invited attention on the street. So I felt this pressure to disappear. And I'm really sad about that because I hurt my body. And I'm like, that's why like now, like if I'm ever hungry, it's like a panic. Like I need to always make sure I eat because it reminds me of that time. And um, it's just sad that society was such that it really impacted me in that way. You know, I think about the first place I ever worked was I had picked up like a weekend job answering the phones at a salon in the town that I grew up in. And I must have been 15. Like my mom had to drop me off. And, you know, obviously in high school, being the first girl to have breasts, you know, get attention, but that didn't really bother me so much. It's when you're kind of faced with someone that's not supposed to be talking to you in that way. And I remember it being my first day at work and I wore um, a blue tank top, I remember, and I think um, like jean capris, that's whatever the fashion was in the early 2000s. The owner making comments about my breasts, about how much older I look. And I remember like trying to like laugh it off and like being really uncomfortable, but also like who's going to answer these phones, like just kind of waiting for the shift to end now. And it was my first day and I never showed up again. I was so embarrassed. I was it was upsetting. So I ended up, I ended up being a hostess at a, at a restaurant. I wanted to save up for a car and it just became so uncomfortable. And I never thought about that until recently I happened to pass by there. It was on my way to somewhere. I haven't been there in years. And I was like, oh yeah, I worked there for a day. Oh my God. Do you like, and didn't even cross my mm-hmm. mind to tell my parents. Yeah. happened. Yeah. And I think that's what the Me Too movement did is it really brought up like all these women and men started remembering things that were inappropriate that it started coming up. And also this behavior, some of this behavior had become normalized and I mean, not rape, but some of these sort of more, you know, comments and these nuance of nuance of it. And all of a sudden it was like seeing through a different lens right? and saying, wait a minute, this happened to me. That person did this. That wasn't okay. That wasn't okay. That wasn't okay. And also how we laughed it off or we smiled it off or, and in some cases it might have felt safer to, you know, people are like, oh, well, why didn't you just push Harvey Weinstein and run past him? And why did you kind of like try and like at first, find a way out that was polite because he was huge and he could hurt me. And, and the male ego is fragile dangerous. and dangerous. <laughs> and it's like you, no one wants to be killed. No one wants to be raped. So you try and find a way to do it in a way where the person doesn't snap. And then you get blamed for, you know, not punching the person in the face. And someone said, well, I would have punched him. I would have kicked him. How do you know that? Anytime someone says that to me, I always say like, how do you know that? Like, unless you're in that situation, it's really hard to tell how you're going to act. Well, there especially are, if it's someone are, that is your mentor, it's especially someone who has power. There That's a are really tough freezers, to be in. There are fleers and there are fighters and I am a freezer. Right. And so, you know, everyone has, no one knows until I freeze and it's actually physiological in your brain. 
Right. And you start to disassociate or I, you know, start to disassociate. And once you have an experience like that, it's very important to be aware of this tendency because I can sometimes disassociate in certain situations. So I have to be actively proactive to not, to make sure I say something or, you know, because it's very easy when you're, when, when that's to, to kind of go down that road um, in, in an uncomfortable situation. So now you say that your writing has shifted more to feminism and activism. Tell me a little bit more about that. I think the Me Too movement, well, first of all, I think when our president was elected, that was a big shift for me because, you know, when he said, grab him by the pussy. And I remember after he was elected, being in an elevator full of men and feeling like, do they feel like they can do this? Is he setting the, the do you think the Me Too movement would have happened if Hillary had not lost the election? You know, it might not have happened. I don't think I, it would have happened. I don't think it would have happened because I think that, I think it's like a pressure cooker and there was so much pain and rage and injustice and fear. And I mean, you have the Women's March and- Which God, was never acknowledged coming from immigrant family. When you move to America, you become friends with other families in your community and those people become your cousins and their parents become your aunts and uncles. And if they have a grandparent, that's your grandparent. This is just, it just kind of makes sense. Like, you know, cause my dad's the youngest of nine kids, seven kids in Athens and none of them live here. I have 15 first cousins. None of them live in, you know, near me. My parents became very close with this one family and, you know, they have three daughters and we grew up together. I just call them my cousins and I would call their grandmother, grandma. I've known them since I was two years old. It was just, it just made sense, you know? So she's amazing. Um, God rest her soul. But in fact, when one of the girls from our group, though, she's the, she's actually the godmother of my son. We had planned to go down the women's march, but unfortunately grandma passed away and she had told us she was going to pass away. So I saw her on December 30th of 2016. She was in the hospital. I thought that was gonna be the, that was my final goodbye to her. So I came down to see her in the hospital and, and uh, she puts her hand on my stomach and she's like, are you pregnant? And I'm like, no, not yet. She goes soon. And then with her sense of humor, she said, oh, I'm going to die before Trump is president. I'm going to die with Obama. Now, parentheses, when, after she passed away, when we were cleaning her house, we found an album from Obama's inauguration. That's what said Obama's inauguration. And we're like, did she go to Obama's inauguration? No, she saw it on TV and she was taking photos of her television. Oh my God. She made amazing. an album. So anyway, so she said, I'm going to die with Obama. And man, this woman, she had it all planned out. She died the last day of Obama's presidency, essentially. And then the next day she had her funeral. And oh my it was God. a distraction from Trump being inaugurated. So you know, she died the day before and then Trump was inaugurated. And the next day of the Women's March is when her funeral was. So it was like that two-day period, right? So I, we weren't able to go to the Women's March. We went to my grandma's memorial and I'm very happy that I did. And I remember that night though, all, a lot of my friends were at the Women's March in New York, but especially in D.C., and I'm thinking, okay, I cannot wait to turn on CNN or MSNBC when we get home. I want to see how they're covering this. And they were covering it. But then there is, at this moment, you know, they were showing a press briefing when they had press briefings with uh, Sean Spicer. Mm. And Sean Spicer doesn't even acknowledge that there is a massive protest outside the White House. They start talking about crowd size of the inauguration. And that's when I was just like, okay, there's going to be a lot of hell to pay if this is how we're starting this. And when the Me Too movement erupted, Quite literally a few months later, I was just, okay, I, would this have happened if Hillary was president? I just kept, you know, thinking about that. 
I don't think it would have. I mean, I hope it would have. Like, I, I mean, it needed to happen no matter what. But I think that it was, you know, that damn. It was the pressure cooker. It was just right. enough is enough. It's just amazing that all of these incredible movements are happening now. It's like, this yeah. is the time, you know? Well, I have a few questions for you from our audience that I'd love to go over yeah, with you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Hi, my name is Eve and I'm 27 years old. I'm wondering if you have a sense of when you typically share your sexual assault survivor status or even your story at a high level with either prospective boyfriends or once they are your boyfriend, I'm really afraid of freaking a guy out. So any advisory here would be appreciated. Thank you. It's a great question. I think it roots the wrong guys out. The guys that would be freaked out are not for you. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so for me, I have been very upfront and, and everyone seems, because I've publicly talked about Harvey Weinstein, Google me, my name is associated with Harvey Weinstein. Everyone Googles each other nowadays. So even if I didn't bring it up, it would be brought up or they would know. I will say there's, I think, four ways to tell a partner about your past sexual trauma. So the first thing is to only disclose when you feel ready. I keep saying this, you know, way to have sex, way to have sex. If you know me, Jasmine, uh, if you follow me, I always, I have a 12 date rule. So one date is equal to three hours. So okay. if you meet for 30 minutes or three hours, it's one date. Okay. You can have a maximum of up to two dates in one day. So let's say you go on a marathon date. That's eight hours long. Okay. That's two dates. Got it. And you have to get to 12 dates. Now, okay. if you are social distance dating right now, so let's say you're doing a lot of Zoom calls, that's totally fine. But three dates have to be physical, okay, which could be done great. in two days, right? Because you could have two dates in I one day. I love that you have this all worked out. Like, it's right. amazing. Now, the reason why I say 12 dates is because I feel like it gives an opportunity to find the range of emotion uh, between the person that you're dating to kind of vet them out a little bit. When I say range of emotion, I mean, not only for you to see what he's like on a bad day, but for you to also experience what he, how he reacts when you have a bad day. And I think it does take time to have those experiences with someone. So disclose only if and when you feel ready. People who are survivors should never feel guilty about centering around what they need in order to share with their partner. And that, that, that does include time. Now, the second part, the second part of this is think about where you're having this conversation. The last place you're having this is in the bedroom naked. If you mm -hmm. need to talk about STDs, if you need to talk about sexual trauma, if you need to talk about assault, the best place to do it is a cl <laughs> with clothing um, in a place that makes you feel comfortable and in a, in a casual environment. So maybe it's at the park, mm -hmm. maybe it's on your couch, but it's certainly not at the dinner table at a nice event. It's not at a wedding and it's certainly not when you're naked. I also don't think that you should be talking about abuse during pillow talk because that's, while it's nice to be vulnerable at that moment, some conversations might need the right environment to be said. Unless you burst into tears. Of course. <laughs> In the no, middle of like, which happens too. So I, you know, that I don't totally really happens. feel like, yeah. And that happens because sometimes um, sex can be very emotional and it's a release. Right. And, and then the reason why I say not pillow talk is because the third reason is like you kind of have to set sometimes, not everyone, but sometimes you might have to set ground rules of how you want the other person to respond to what you're saying. And yeah. when you're doing pillow talk, because you're all both in a vulnerable state, you're laying down, you know, you're, you're only inches away from each other's faces. They might respond in ways that might 
make you not feel comfortable. So if you're able to set ground rules of how you want them to respond, like for instance, saying, you know, I'm going to tell you something I need, I need to talk, but you can't, you cannot interrupt me until I finish. Mm. I will answer your questions at the end. Or you could say, I'm not willing to answer any questions. I'm going to tell you about what I'm about to tell you. And I just need you to listen. Like, I feel like having that disclosure creates an opportunity for it all to be heard in, in the narrative that you want it to be heard. I think sometimes when people experience trauma and they share it, there's an opportunity for gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's okay. Or, oh, it was God's way or some, something silly is going to be said. Right. Right. And I don't, I don't think that um, happens. I think any- that someone has to earn your trust. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. what I was saying before about saying it right away, I don't know if I don't necessarily, I'm not sure about now that after you kind of spoke, I think there are certain things that you do say right away that can like weed people out. Like if you, so you're different. I'll talk about what makes you different. Okay. You are public with your trauma and that's okay. You might have to talk about it quite quickly. That is okay as well. The truth is anyone going out on a date with Jasmine Lowe probably has Googled Jasmine Lowe. Right. And that's okay. Like that is, I'm not saying this is your only identity, but that is part of your identity. And And that was a big part when I came out. I didn't want that to be a part of my identity. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be associated with that, but I felt it was so important to use my voice that I felt like, you know, that inner knowing that 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 was bigger than the part of me that was afraid of being associated with him. Like, I felt like, you know what? This is my truth. My truth is bigger than my fear. Sometimes also our fears, I'm not going to say they're unfounded, they're completely founded. Our fears though are our own self-sabotaging beliefs. Like Jasmine, because you are public with what you've written, I'm going to assume that any guy dating you for more than three or four dates, he like like that has nothing to do with why he likes you, obviously. And he's, he's taken your emotional baggage, if you will, with him. Like he's willing to carry that with you when you're ready to share it. Yes, absolutely. The last thing I want to say uh, in terms of for, you know, when to talk about this is you have to set up, if you are going to end up with being sexually active with the person you're sharing this trauma with, I think it's really important to communicate your needs during sex or activities that happen during, you know, these intimate moments that could trigger. So if you feel like there are certain activities that are triggering you need to talk about what that safe word is. You need to talk about what, what makes you stop. Like, I mean, I think it's about being with a respectful person. I don't think you need to be, you know, traumatized to ask for to be respected in bed. But I think, I think that's how I would answer, you know, that's how I would go about disclosing previous sexual trauma with a new partner. Yes. And again, I've said this a thousand times. The purpose of a first date is not to, not to share this sort of information about you. It's not even to figure out if they're going to be your boyfriend or the future father of your child. The entire purpose of a first date is to go on a second date. That's it. Have fun. Mm. When the time comes, because let me tell you, every guy you date, he's not going to get to 12 dates. And the guy who gets to 12 dates, he might be already in love with you. He's probably willing to carry that trauma, that emotional baggage that you're holding. And we so, all have emotional baggage. We all do. So I think it's important too, to know that like, just that everyone is carrying something. And I think it's like one out of five women have been sexually assaulted. I mean, it's, very oh, I mean, the numbers are crazy. I was actually looking them up today. Every 73 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. And one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. One out of every six. 
uh, 3% of American men have experienced an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. If you're wondering where this ha- where the crime occurred, 48% were sleeping or performing another activity at home. 29% were traveling to and from work or school. 12% were working. 7% were attending school. And 5% were doing another activity. All of this information I found on the RAIN website. RAIN is, stands for Rain Rape, Rape, Abuse, mm-hmm. and Incest National Network. Um, it's the biggest anti-sexual violence organization. Uh, and if you would like to get more information, you can check out the website at rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. So I have more questions for you. Hi, my name is Leila and I'm 39 years old. I'm not sure what to disclose when dating someone new, not just when. For example, in many ways, I would consider myself sexually inexperienced. So would it be best for me to share this inexperience? And if so, what would be a safe way so that I remain confident, limit awkwardness, and alleviate pressure on both sides? I thought this is a great question for uh, the J-spot. Yeah. <laughs> Which is I the mean, name of like, Jasmine's column. I feel like it kind of comes back to your, you know, 12 date rule in the sense that when two people get to know each other and really respect each other, I think you can really tell the other person about your fears and about if you feel sexually inexperienced talking about that. Like, and I really think it comes back to earning trust so that one feels safe talking about that. I think, you know, you're right on the first date, I don't think, or the second date. And once you really start, you know, forming that connection, and I think that most men would be very understanding and because people want to, to open up and everyone has their own insecurities. Everyone's want, is scared to tell the other person something. So you just have you know to it's our own self sabotaging beliefs, and if you know if you've already been on five dates with someone, I don't care if you have a date on the sixth date. You don't have to follow my rules, but my rules get you in relationships, so whatever. But <laughs> but um, if you are dating someone, and let's say you're on the fifth date, you know it's exactly what you just said that men are probably going to be um, understanding, and it's our own self sabotaging beliefs that keep us from saying and living our truth. Yes. You know, and just write that down. Like I always say, when you feel anxiety, take out your notebook and just start writing down the facts, which is, oh, I have been on five dates with this guy. He wants to go on a date with me again. We have kissed. This is how I felt. This is how he made me feel. You know, like start writing down the facts. Right. And what you feel might be a big deal for yourself isn't necessarily a big deal for him and you're seeing it through your eyes and we all see our insecurities through our own eyes which are magnified like times a hundred and so you know to to remember that and to keep that perspective i struggle to think of a good man that you actually want to sleep with have a problem with you being sexually inexperienced yeah and it's also the same with sexual trauma i struggle to find a good man who can't listen and find patience if he really likes you yeah you can see how someone treats you and everyone comes in with their own insecurities and you know that happens to be yours all right let's get another one hi maria my name is peter and i'm 32 in light of the pandemic and someone someone like myself who hasn't had any good success with online dating how does one go about meeting new people uh given social distancing measures and that many things aren't open including bars clubs Uh, socials and other activities it seems more difficult now than ever to potentially meet that someone special organically thank you i think there's a lot of opportunities um to meet people 
right now, but you have to be just way more creative and no longer think about what the dating standard was before. I mean, I'll tell you, my company has three accounts with open table at platinum level. Like that's how many dates we've set up in the last 12 wow. years. Okay. Wow. And um, something like close to like 3,500 first dates we've set up. For the first time in four months, we just set up a physical date a week ago and it went really well. I'm so happy. Oh, and we exciting. told them to what we told them to meet at Strawberry Fields in Central Park. And they did. And they took a walk. And it's actually a really great date idea because Strawberry Fields just, it naturally goes in. If you start walking South down the Central Park loop, it ends at 59th street. So, you know, if the date's going well, you could just keep going around the park or stop. It's like that friend that calls you halfway through. You're like, oh, this is the point. And then yeah. like you go either way. Well, you don't have to just say that. You're just be like, oh, well, this is nice. And just kind of get off at Columbus Circle. Right. But here's the opportunities that I would say for, for physical dating. You could definitely take the virtual approach. And I don't necessarily mean online dating. I keep telling people, throw a friend of a friend party. Peter is a gentleman. So he needs to call two of his guy friends. We all have a single girlfriend and you, you do a zoom party and find an activity you can all do virtually. I like poker. Mm. I think poker, you know, gives people an opportunity to talk while they're um, engaging in an activity, uh, left brain, right brain sort of thing altogether. So you have six people now meeting each other for the first time. I also think that now with some cities opening up, there are opportunities. I mean, you can always go to a BLM protest, which is, I think, my favorite way to meet someone. Obviously, that should not be your main purpose, but you're going to meet some really great men there or women. Now there are fitness classes in the park. There are, you know, people are so hungry for talking. As long as you're wearing a mask and you're just six feet apart, people are friendly. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy? I feel like people have become more friendly. People have become, I mean, during the height of the pandemic, I, I think people were really dodging each other because we were all terrified. I mean, there were morgue trucks in New York. So I don't think anyone was, you know, this was like survival. Right. Um, but I do think that now, especially in New York, as the numbers are dropping, you know, I think people have become friendlier and hopefully the rest of the country will hit their peak and the numbers will drop soon too. I mean, this is, this is very hard, but right. uh, I do think that, um, especially in New York, because that's what I can speak for. Um, people have become much friendlier. Yes. And the connections that you do meet, like now it's almost like back in the olden days where people really courted each other because now I think some people are a little bit more hesitant to meet someone right away right. than they were before. Now it might well, this be is a great time for dating. I'm, I'm Zoom dates or, you know, to, to actually get to know her. someone. Yeah. Because it's like, it's a big risk when you meet with someone in the, right. you know, even six feet apart. Like, I mean, that, that's safe, but still it's not like, you know, Oh, let's, you know, I just met this person. Hey, let's have a quick drink tonight. It's, it's a, a very different feel and it might actually be really healthy for dating because- I think I this is a healthy moment in dating, like full stop. I see it. I see it with my clients. They're spending so much more time now getting to know each other before they, before they decide to physically meet mm -hmm. on their own. And it, I feel like the, my job has become more enriched as a result. Mm. Like people are even more, what's the word? More forgiving. You know, recently one of my, one of my dates had to cancel because of COVID Mm. And the person was like, you know, they weren't mad at me or even mad at the person, the match. They were just like, oh my gosh, I hope they feel better. Wow. And I yeah. think previously it had been like, oh, well, why are you sitting with someone who's- Such a plague. 
yeah, such a flake. Exactly. And I'm like, oh no, this is, and, it, and I've never said anyone who was a flake. Sometimes life happens. You, right. you know, you're an accountant, April 15 rolls around, right. you're going to yeah. have an extra, like you're going to have late nights, you know? So, so it was very, it's been interesting to, you know, see how dating is shifting. Yeah. Okay. Let me go to my next question. Hi, Maria. I'm Sierra. I'm 27 and originally from Anchorage, Alaska, but I now live in Seattle, Washington. Before moving to Seattle, I'd visit about once a quarter for work. And on every trip, a high school friend of mine who lives in Seattle would come and meet me. Some of those times things were just friendly. And then other times both of us were single and it would definitely be a little bit flirty. So I moved to Seattle right before COVID hit. So we're finally in the same city and he was quarantining pretty seriously. And and so I hadn't seen him until last night. We finally went to dinner and I think there were some hints. He was wearing his mask for a lot of the date other than having dinner and drinks. But when we were saying goodbye, he took his mask off and I kind of wondered if maybe he would go in for a kiss or try to make a move. There were certain moments where I felt like Maybe he was interested and that I was picking up on that more than friends vibe again. I'd like to explore dating him, but I don't know how to bring it up without uh, potentially ruining the friendship if it's a blow to my ego and he doesn't want to pursue anything. What do you think? Should I say something? Should I let it be? Thanks, Maria. I think she should just be straight up. Like, I think that at this point, like... I know she says she has, you know, a friendship with him, but I think she has nothing to lose because if she has these feelings, then she's always going to be feeling like that draw and depleted a little bit. And so I think that she should just go for it. The way she described it, I got the sense that he's kind of into her too, especially if he took down his mask. Uh, I feel like that's a little, mm. look, I've learned that with men, if he wants to date you, he's going to date you. And that's that. Like there's no, there's no hidden door. There's no hidden agenda it seems like this person wants to date you because otherwise why spend time <laughs> with someone yeah, no else? I feel like that's a sign that- a big um, deal to get together with anyone if so, there wasn't COVID. <laughs> you know, if I were in her place, yeah, make a move. And that move is, you know, call him, text him. You know, I would prefer phone or FaceTime and get cute, which yeah. is, you know, I was thinking about you. That's all you have to say. I was thinking about you. And then how he reacts to that sentence will tell you everything you need to know. Because if he says, I was thinking about you too, guess what? He likes you. Or if he's trying to brush it off or trying to get off that FaceTime, he's not into you. He's just like, he'll say stuff like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for a relationship right now, or he'll explicitly tell you what he doesn't want. Evaluate the friendship. You know, right. that, it might not be a friendship. Might not be a friendship. I know she's worried about her, like, getting hurt. But I guess, listen, that's we all. That's what love is: is taking risks. Because if you don't take the risk, you remain small and tight. But if you take the risk, it is possible to get hurt. And so it's just someone's um, in every relationship. Someone has to make the move, and someone, you know, it's going to sound corny. I remember with my husband when we first met, I was into him and he was into me, but he was never going to my husband's introverted and little, you know, a little shyer and I'm this strong woman <laughs> opposite him at this cocktail bar that we were at with friends. And I was trying to like figure out like, okay, is he into me? Am I wrong here? Like what's going on? And I remember um, trying to find any reason for him to like, I need to get his number so he can know, like, so I can do my like little test. And I remember asking him, like, where, where do you live here? And he goes, yeah. I go, okay, next time I'm here, we're definitely going for a coffee. And 
you know, show me on the map. And he's like, Oh, take down my number. And so we can go for coffee. Like that's how I kind of led, led into it. So I have his number. And what I decided to do is I texted him because he said, you know, send me your number, like text me your number. And I, I texted him instead of photo of myself looking cute. <laughs> it's actually the photo I have as my default profile on Instagram <laughs> where I'm awesome. like drinking like a little teacup and um, pinkies out. And uh, I wrote, you know, you know, Hey, that's it. It's Maria. And he wrote back, you're cute. Aww. And that was it. That's all I needed for it to be like, all right, green light, let's it's go. On. You know, it's on, but he, I, someone had to, I had to kind of show, otherwise, if I wasn't into him, I would have just been like, I don't need your number. You know, exactly. like I would not be talking to you right now. So yeah. sometimes it's just a matter of, okay, he's warming up to you, but now you have to kind of make not the grand gesture, but make the gesture. So he knows that right. and then he can not going to be disrespecting you. You know, like that's the thing, especially there. in like me too, you know, you don't want women, we don't want men to think that they can't pursue us either, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. but there are respectful ways of doing it. And that's, mm-hmm. that's one way is to give them the green light of like, Hey, I, I need you to flirt with me now. Right. Exactly. Now. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now you can do <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. One last question. Hi, this is Sarah calling from Philadelphia. I have someone that I've been talking with and texting with and seemed to really connected with online. Um, We met through an app and we've been connecting for the past five weeks or so. And we've met in person once. I feel like things are going pretty well, but at the same time, I don't think that I have accurate measures against progress because I've never been in this pandemic dating remotely situation before. It just makes me, it really compounds whatever anxiety I often bring into dating. And I'm finding that getting to like second, third in-person meeting is kind of hard just between scheduling and then not sure how to do it. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you have any advice. Thanks. It's tough creating the momentum during a pandemic. It really is. It's like, (laughs) I'm an advocate of saying what's on my mind. Me too. And, and just being honest, obviously, you know, there, it's one thing to be honest and say what's on your mind. It's another thing to just constantly talk about the relationship. So I think that, you know, you could say like, I'd love to see you again and get, and get the pulse. And if he is kind of, you know, not really going there, then maybe, maybe. I'd rather know now than later, you know, I don't want to drag this on with someone. Because you could just text, keep texting and then. You know, you form a more emotional attachment and then you could- Here's here's what it should look like. You meet someone today on OkCupid, whatever, match.com, Hinge, give me a website. You meet, you decide to, let's say, do a Zoom call first. I don't know. That goes well. Let's say you do that tomorrow. I don't think you should be pen paling anyone longer than 48 hours. So, you know, meet, meet their Zoom. That goes well, start planning a physical date. The physical distance date, you're both wearing masks, you're meeting at a public park, you're taking a nice walk, which is quite romantic. That is actually how people used to date. That's how people used to court each other. Restaurants are actually quite a new invention in history. Do that. And if it's if it's vibing and, and you'll know if it's vibing, you're going to have that rapport, that connection, your soul acknowledges the other person's soul. Then you're going to, at the end of that date, you might make plans for your second meeting. At this moment, because of the pandemic, people are restless. 
They are craving human interaction. And they're also trying to be more understanding of where you're coming from. Maybe you have a family member who is immunocompromised and you can't do certain activities. And I understand that. Maybe you're immunocompromised and you can't do certain activities. And I get that. You could still keep physically meeting for walks. And at some point, if it's going well, decide, okay, listen, I want to make out with you. We got to quarantine for two weeks. But you know what? By the time you quarantine for two weeks, if that's actually happening, guess what? By the end of that, you're in love. Mm-hmm. That's the that's it. That that that's literally the the formula quarant- to get into a relationship. I mean, qu- quarantine by separately, the, separately. But don't see anyone else. Don't right. meet with anyone else. Got it. Got but it. I'm gonna. Zo- I'll, I'll meet with you in person, but I'm not gonna meet anyone else physically. Listen, I'm giving you a formula that's worked so far for like seven of my couples in the last four mm-hmm. months. I've had seven couples do exactly what I just said. And three of them are actually dating. That's it. They're, they're, the one of them is living with each other. So there is a formula here that works, but it takes a lot of effort. And, and it's only going to work for people who are actually emotionally available right now. Yes. And just because we're in a available. pandemic doesn't mean that everyone's emotionally available. There are still people online dating or, you know, outside dating, whatever, who are not emotionally available. They're just bored. They're horny. That, and that's, those are perfectly acceptable feelings to have. Um, you know, no shame, right. but not someone you know, want they're not the like people it. that you're going to quarantine with. What do you think about getting a COVID test? Sometimes I like that. Test. See, the thing that scares me that is that true. I don't know how accurate they are. My husband's a public health scientist and, you know, he's made me aware that some COVID tests, while they, they, they test for Corona and you know what Corona is, Corona is also the common cold. The common cold falls under Corona. Mm. So I don't know how accurate these tests are, but right. if you take a COVID test and let, let's say you take COVID test and you quarantine for like a week, mm-hmm. you know, maybe now you can invite him over your place. And now that's your new place to date. Now he gets to cook for you. You cook for him. Like you can create dating, you know, do movie night, movie nights, by the way, I've done this with my husband. You have to physically put your phones, turn them off, put them in a different room and get some popcorn. Like, so many movie nights at home get destroyed because we're all thumbing on our, on our social media. That's a very, very good point. So there are, if you can get past certain things, uh, with someone that you've been talking to and, and, and vibing with, then you can have like really interesting dates at each other's homes. I know it's, you know, hard to say that, but uh, to be honest, if you've been talking to someone that you might invite them over anyway, someone asked, how long do you recommend a typical date being in or out of pandemic? The last person I was seeing, I would make our date seven to eight hours. No. And it was so overwhelming, but I had a hard time giving them signals. I'm a wrap. Um, if you have a hard time to give signals of when it's time to end the date, you need to start scheduling things after your date. You need or make them school night dates. Hey, it's a school night. I have to go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in marathon dates personally. Yeah. I think dates should be a maximum. To be honest, personally, I think dates should be maximum two hours. Um, in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah. yeah, yeah. Two hours, Unless two hours, you're like totally know. can't stop talking. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. I, I say I don't believe in that. I think unless really? you can't, you think no, even no. If you, even if you can't stop talking, you should end. If you're, yeah, if you're going to have a relationship in 24 hours, it's never going to mm. cultivate into anything. And that's what happens is people, you know, it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to talk to someone all day. You know, I think your first day should be maximum two hours, you know, mm-hmm. and then make, make plans for tomorrow, make plans for the next, no one has, you don't have to wait five dates. Hey, I'm having a great time. I need to go home. Can yeah. we hang out tomorrow? People need to regroup and like center themselves, or at least I know I need to center myself. Like, you know, it's yeah. a lot of energy that goes it's exciting energy. If you need someone that you really connect with, but it's a lot of energy. I have a question. 
so I have a question about, so as a matchmaker. You know a few matchmakers. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, I went, uh, you know, a couple years ago on matchmaking dates and I just never really felt, like I felt like it was a lot of rich men that would pay like a lot of money. I actually wrote an article about it I called matchmaking or pimping. <laughs> but I feel like the reason I'm doing this pod podcast is because I really respect you. And we met like years Thanks. ago on a panel and you have integrity. There's an honesty to you. And I somehow have a feeling that, you know, I don't know much about your matchmaking services, but I just have a feeling that you are probably very, really look for what you think might work with someone else. Whereas I have, I do know of matchmaking services that are kind of, it doesn't really matter. You know, they just like want yeah. a woman that's attractive, this, that. Right. And it's like, all of a sudden you're on a date and it's like- You're wondering why am I out with this person? I can't talk for other matchmaking services, right. but I will say um, something about mine, which I'm very proud of. I will only take clients that I respect. <laughs> that's actually mm. a big thing. And that's the word I was using with you because you respect someone when you can see that they have integrity. Right. Yeah. I feel like the Agape Match brand attracts the kind of guy that I want to work with. At least that's been my experience. So a lot of the men that I work with, they're not, or, or, and women, they're not interested in just meeting, oh, she has to be, you know, skinny and hot. Or, you know, he has to be you know, wealthy and powerful or whatever. That's, those are not the criteria. Mm -hmm. It's always, you know, they have to be intellectually curious. They have to be passionate. Um, they have to want to grow a family, you know? And so mm -hmm. there's certain th criteria that's coming out from our clients. I'm really picky with our clients. So one of the criteria that we use whenever we take on a client is, is there a 90% chance that I'll get you in a relationship in the next six months? That's literally the criteria we use. And if they're, if the, if it's less 90%, we actually refer them out to a different matchmaker. I have no wow. problem selling my leads. Um, but thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. I've worked really hard. And did on you say that you have it in your family? Like that yeah. it's like a multi, like, yeah, it's multi-generational. Of course, you know, my grandmothers, they were setting up people and maybe they got paid with like a goat. Right. <laughs> Someone uh, invited them for dinner. Or... Yeah. And I have plenty of stories that I've heard over the years from my family about that. Um, it's interesting. Cause like, I think about it, you know, my, my grandmother, she set up people that were going to get married in three months, but they probably knew each other. They're from the same community uh, or the same Island they were just not looking at each other romantically and mm -hmm. romance is a very new concept in the human experience. Um, not, not, I'm not saying passion is I'm saying romance, which is it's Hollywood, you know, and, and dating is a new concept for many cultures too. So I think what my grandmother did was try to find people that would respect each other mm -hmm. and get along with each other, like each other. That's Love will grow but liking is the first step. And you that's actually the like philosophy. The person, yeah. you respect the person. Otherwise. That's totally my love philosophy at work too. I always tell my clients, you know, it's so easy to fall in love. I can, I can fall in love with anyone. Just give me, just give me a day, you know? Yeah. But it's really hard to decide to like someone for the next 40 years of your life. Right. And not only that, but you have to continue to be likable as well so that the other person can like you. And so that's the philosophy that we use for our clients. We tell our clients, like, I'm going to try to find someone that you're going to like. Mm. And it's also why I say to my husband, and this is, you know, hat tip to parks and recreation, but 
um, I love you and I like you, you know, mm-hmm. those are two things that I always say to my husband, you know, multiple times a week. So yeah, I thank you for saying that. I appreciate yeah. that. I did not yeah. pay her to say that. No, well, that's why own. I mean, yeah, it's true, it's true. <laughs> so that makes me really happy. Great. Yeah. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. This was um, so wonderful. Thank you. You can follow Jasmine on Twitter or Instagram at Jasmine Loeb. You can also read her column at The Observer. Thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you love what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a dating or relationship question or any big ahas you'd like to share, email askamatchmakerpodcast at gmail.com. Want more dating and relationship tips? Check out my Instagram at matchmakermaria. If you're sending me a DM for dating advice, I'm warning you now, I screenshot. You can also continue the conversation at our Facebook group. Just search for Agape Matchsticks. Until then, see you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.